question to start. Have you noticed how everything's always breaking? Like how many light bulbs are out in your house right now? I got like six, and they never stay on. So I got to change two, and two more die. My pool is, you know, always on the verge of going to see Jesus. The heater, which was fixed last year, is just not doing what it's supposed to do. I don't want to say it's breaking because I don't want to curse it, but it seems like everything's always breaking. My car has never stopped needing oil changes. Feels like I just get one done and I need another one. Now I've got to switch the tires. It's crazy. Everything is always breaking. My Achilles hurts because we added another plate to our sled push on Friday. It's like my Achilles is breaking. Well, hopefully not breaking, but you know what I mean. Doesn't it drive you crazy how everything's always breaking? Drive me crazy. Well, that's because I know that uh, I'm meant for something more, and probably you know the same thing. That's why it drives you crazy when things break, because you know you're meant for something more. You've been built for the high country. You know deep in your heart that you weren't built to die. This is why death and brokenness bother you so much. The uh, death of author Rachel, Rachel Held Evans and bothering Nikki and I for the last 28 hours. We found out yesterday evening. 37, went into the hospital with a flu. Now she's with Jesus. Leaving a husband and two little kids, you're like, it's so troubling. I was thinking about Dr. Matt, who last week had death visit his colleague at work. And I was thinking, man, it's just, I mean, for you it's part of the job, but it doesn't make it any easier. We know deep inside that we're not built to die. That's why death and brokenness bother us so much. We know deep in our hearts that there's a better way. We're going to discover that today in Mark chapter 4. Have a listen. This is a good one. Again, Jesus began to teach by the sea. Notice that like chapter 3 started with again. Chapters 2 started with an and. It's a continuation of this story about Jesus. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat Again, he's getting into a boat, my kind of Jesus, and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them with many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfolds and a hundredfolds. And he said, he or she who has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that... They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. These are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. He said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he or she has will be taken away. This is difficult Jesus today. It's not a friendly Jesus. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? (laughs) And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? I have vivid memories of the first time I read Mark 4. I think I was 10. First time I read it by myself. And it's really fun to see as I come to it as a 45-year-old preacher that many of the things I understood at 10 still ring true today. Here in Mark chapter 4, we see a recipe for life in the midst of a world that's dying. And it's a nine-part recipe. So if you're a note-taker, we're highlighting nine points. I looked at Jules, right? Jules the note-taker. Nine points. It's a recipe for life in the midst of a world that's dying. Part 1 is contained in verses 1 through 2. Here we realize that Jesus has something to teach you, and it's going to be a bit of a stretch. Verse 1, again, he began to teach. I want you to note here that Jesus is a teacher. And on the back of that, I want to ask you this question. What have you learned from him lately? See, Jesus is still alive. He's a teacher. What have you learned from him lately? Walking with Jesus is like a continuing education. That was immensely challenging to me the moment I wrote it. I was like, oh my. You see, we're not looking to arrive in our relationship with Jesus. We're not looking to like, step one, step two, step three, you're good. What we're looking to do in our relationship with Jesus is to grow. We're looking to grow. There is no law of diminishing returns in the kingdom of God. We go from glory to glory. Challenge here is to be learning from Jesus. You know, what do you do with a plant that stops growing? I'll tell you what Jesus says about a plant that stops growing. If anyone does not abide in me, he or she is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. John fifteen six. 
So if that just made you feel a little bit uncomfortable, the thought of useless branches being cut down, gathered, and thrown in the fire, good. Because Jesus is trying to make you uncomfortable in Mark chapter 4. That's why he's teaching them in parables. He wants to make them feel a little uneasy, and he was teaching them many things in parables. The original word for the word parable is literally beside cast. So it's like you take that kernel of truth, that point that you're trying to make, and you cast it beside them. You don't throw it to them, you throw it beside them. Beside cast. Why? The implication is so that they will have to reach for it. He's teaching them many things in beside cast. It's like he wants you to reach. It's as if Jesus wants you to do the work required to solve the puzzle that is the kingdom of God. The point here for us should be very encouraging, although it comes in by the back door. Following Jesus is meant to be challenging. Do you ever feel like, why is it so hard? This shouldn't be so difficult. Well, he's not spoon-feeding them when he teaches in parables. He's beside-casting it. He wants to teach you something, but it's going to be a bit of a stretch. So keep that in mind next time you find yourself having to reach. And don't let it bother you. Remember here that God is the one who takes the initiative. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. You know, this whole, like, trying to live thing. Just because God takes the initiative doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but thankfully there is a system that we can follow. The system is here outlined as we continue in Mark 4 with verse 3. A sower went out to sow. Now we get to the parable of the sower, one of the more famous parables in all of the New Testament. A sower went out to sow. Who is the sower? Well, God is the sower. How do we know that God is the sower? Well, you can go to any number of verses in the Old and the New Testament to build a case for God as the author and finisher of our faith. But for our purposes this morning, let's just pick John 1.4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. God is the source. He is Alpha Omega. He is beginning and end. In Him all things consist, meaning in God all things hold together. Specifically, when John is talking about God, he's talking about the Logos, the spoken word of God, the one who would become in his incarnation Jesus of Nazareth. He is the sower. He is the beginning. He is the end. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The story starts with, abides in, and culminates with God. God takes the initiative, so you can relax a little bit. All the A-types should say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Jenny was saying in our prayer time before we started that as she interacted with some of her friends, co-workers, and peers this week in our wild, wild world that she could sense an underlying panic. And I wonder if you could identify with that, this overwhelming sense that things are out of control and you're doing everything you can just to keep up. The genius of the gospel is beautiful if that's you. God is in charge. He's good. He takes the initiative, so relax, while recognizing that life's going to have all kinds of problems. So what happens in the parable of the sower, no? You think if God was the one who scatters the seed, it would all be fine. You think if God was good, my life wouldn't be so difficult. 
parable of the sower has something else to say. Some of the seed falls on the path. What's the problem there? The birds swoop in and take it away. Some of the seed falls on rocky soil. It's a little bit of soil. So it grows up real quick. Because the soil is shallow, when the sun comes up, because the seed had no root, it scorches it and it withers and dies. Another problem. Some of the seed is cast amongst thorns and the thorns grow up. If you've ever had a garden, you know that thorns tend to grow faster than flowers. Why is that? I wonder if the Lord knew that each of his people would one day come to Mark chapter 4 and read about seed cast among thorns. And even though most of us are not farmers, we understand what happens when the thorns grow up and choke the seed. But then we get to verse 8. And other seeds fell in good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. 30, 60, 100. So yes, you have problems. This is what's outlined in verses 3 through 7. Problems. Pathway problems. Rocky soil problems. Thorny problems. Yes, we have problems, and we'll unpack them a little more in just a moment. But let me say to you in the midst of your life that may be full of problems, that there is still good soil. And there is a system that we can learn to work as we follow Jesus. What is that system? I know some of you are system people. And this is your best day. You're like, our arty, hectic pastor is going to finally give me a system for godliness. Thank God. So we do have a system for you today. It looks like this. Fall, sprout, produce, grow, increase, yield, 30, 60, 100. Fall, sprout, produce, grow. Increase, yield, 30, 60, 100. Why is this system important? Well, I think it would be safe to say that all of us would prefer to be on the good seed, good soil, good result side of the equation, right? Am I right? Nod at me if I'm right. Wouldn't you rather be on the good soil, good seed, good result side of the equation? Yes, I would like to be on that side. Okay, so some things to keep in mind. You're going to fall somewhere. So look at your life this week and see where you have fallen. Where has God placed you? And then accept it and figure out how to grow. You're going to fall somewhere, and if God is the sower, he's the one who's cast you there. This means that deep dissatisfaction shouldn't get you. You see? If you believe that God has cast you there, you're like, okay, Lord, you're God and I'm not. All right, let's go. Fall. Sprout. In order to sprout, you have to die first. I never told you the gospel was anything less than uncomfortable. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life or her life in this world will keep it for eternal life. These are the words of Jesus in John 12, 24 and 25. Now, of course, in that original context, he's speaking about himself. That he's about to die, be buried, and when he rises again, he will bear much fruit. You are some of that fruit. The many billions of people who have given Jesus their life since he ascended to the Father's right hand and sat down in victory. Because we are little Christs, that is the definition, after all, of the word Christian, 
because we are learning to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, because we are learning to be like him in everything we do. When Jesus speaks about himself, as you are in him, he's speaking about you. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves their life will lose it, but whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In every situation, the Christian must walk into it thinking this, I'm here to die. And I, I just got to admit it, <clears throat> that I thought about our board meetings. And I thought about the things we talk about and the ways in which we talk about them. I thought about us, board members. I thought if we came into those meetings thinking, I'm here to die, we would see a different result. And all the board members present said, You gotta say amen. 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 I'm here to die. This would be true in your life. This would be true in your interpersonal conflicts, wouldn't it? You would never fight with your wife again if you came into every conflict thinking, I'm here to die. Now, I know that this might make you feel profoundly uncomfortable. It makes me feel the same way. But the logical progression of this line of thinking is that Christians ought not to fight. Because the moment you pick up your sword to slay your opponent, they grab it and stab themselves first because they're here to die. I felt like a kindergartner as I read this. I felt, like, I felt like I'm an idiot. I felt like, how could I have missed this? I felt like I could go home after that one point. I'm here to die. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Sprout. Produce. Um, you're meant to do stuff. <laughs> what have you produced lately for the kingdom? Are you a producer or a consumer? I don't even got to shout that point, do I? Grow. You uh, should be getting better. Do you see improvement? <laughs> Again, don't you feel like a 17-year-old? <laughs> You're like, <laughs> I'm so immature. I think I'm good, but I'm not. I mean, is it just me? You're supposed to see improvement. Increase. We're an onward and upward kind of people. So what's your next challenge? I really like that as an Enneagram 8, truth be told. <laughs> but even the Enneagram 9s and 1s, you're like, what's the Enneagram? Ask Nikki, she'll help you. Or ask Becky, she'll help you. If you're a go-getter kind of person, you're like, yeah, this is my best day. Pastor just said it's onward and upward. But if you're a quiet, more withdrawn, reserved kind of person, that's good. God made you the way you are, and we celebrate you. But you hear that, and you're like, oh, I don't know. What's your next challenge? And then, of course, yield. Yield. <laughs> Is there any measurable kingdom fruit in your life? And then as if it's not enough, he lays this one on us. 30, 60, 100-fold. She's like, we're good. 
Yeah, except times 30, times 60, times 100. Now, I will admit that I do have lists of things I think about in a times 30, times 60, times 100 kind of way. Some of you know this. Some of you have little pennies on them with little yellow stickers on the back that have a times 30 on it. And some of you have little pennies with little yellow stickers on the back that have a times 60 on it. Do you not? Y'all know who you are. I know who you are. You got those pennies. Some of you crazy people got the times 100 penny. You came and asked me, like, what does this mean? And I told you. Didn't I tell you what it means? I know what it means because I am learning to have a times 30, times 60, times 100 kind of faith. And I got to say that since last summer, the Lord started rebuking me that my faith is too small. And I kept hearing the scriptures echoing in my mind, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you have not because you ask that you might spend it on your pleasures. So I was like, wait a minute, I don't know the Lord at all. Because if I knew the Lord, I'd understand His will implicitly. Therefore, when I prayed, I would see results. Then I get really scary things happen, like last July, I start praying for 300 people at Christmas. And if you were here last July, you're like, that's crazy. And then we had more than 300 for Christmas. And have I told you that I prayed for 600 for Easter? And we had 616 over Easter weekend. Have I told you that I've prayed for 1,000 by next Christmas? You're like, why the numbers? Because it's people. It means more people tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And so I lie there in my bed at night, and I see God's fulfillment, and yet I still lack faith because I feel like I'm crazy when I'm praying these 30, 60, 100 kind of prayers. I hope that you feel as uncomfortable as I do. Because that's when the people of God begin to achieve greatness. What parts of your life is God inviting you to put a 30, 60, 100 dream on? I felt like T.D. Jakes as I wrote that. I could imagine how he would preach that in his church. What's God asking you to put a 30, 60, 100 dream on? Friends, dream bigger if you want to live because God takes the initiative. I mean, and it's not going to be easy, this whole I want to live thing, but there is a system you can follow. Fall, sprout, produce, grow, increase, yield, 30, 60, 100, which leads us to part three, which includes verses 10 through 20. In part three, we need to get ready to work because our adversary is real and you're going to need to cultivate depth because anxiety, the seductiveness of our material world and an unrestrained appetite, which is the definition for lust, are going to do everything they can to strangle your growth. This is what happens when Jesus explains the parable of the sower. It's like, okay, so when the seed falls on the rocky soil, the bird is the devil. The devil comes and steals the seed. The church, the devil is real. Our adversary is actual. Be prepared. Yeah, I heard the Lion King in my head too. Be prepared. <laughs> Your adversary is real. What's the shallow soil? Well, it springs up real quick. You ever seen this? I've seen this a dozen times, more than a dozen times. As a pastor, unfortunately, people come to church, start tasting seeing the Lord is good. They're like, woo! And the first sign of persecution or tribulation on account of the words, so the first friend who rejects them, the first family member who ostracizes them, the first promotion they get passed over at at work because their faith in Jesus has gone public. I mean, the first time you get that real burning heat of persecution that arises in your life, they wither up and fall away because they have no root. Your adversary is real. Persecution is real. And then this is the one that most clearly applies to us as prosperous Westerners. The seed that falls amongst the thorns. And what happens with those seed? Anxiety. 
I mean, don't show me your hand, but how many of you suffer from anxiety? And I'm not saying you're bad if you do. I know what it is to worry. I know that suffering from clinical anxiety is just a terrible, terrible thing. And I want you to know this morning that there is freedom in Jesus. And I'm not saying it's overnight, but I'm saying that in Christ, you'll be able to set your eyes on the way through. And by his grace, as the Holy Spirit fills you, you will be enabled to take the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step as God walks with you out of the valley of the shadow of death, back towards the high country. But you tell me if you know somebody in whom anxiety is choking the word. You tell me if you know somebody in whom the seductiveness of our material world is choking the word. And everybody said, right? You tell me if you know somebody in whom the lust for things is choking the word. These things, the devil, worry, and the lust for prosperity and things are going to do everything they can to choke the life out of you. So be prepared. And then stake your hope on verses 11 through 12. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is a very thorny passage. It's caused everybody trouble forever. It caused me trouble when I was 12. I was like, this sounds like Jesus doesn't want people to repent. That doesn't make any sense, because 1 Peter says that it's his will that none should perish. So what does he mean here? Is this wrong? Is the Bible wrong? Like first-year religious studies, you're like, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Unless Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, where Isaiah the prophet is being sarcastic as prophets are known to be because they're thorny, difficult people. And he's, I know, yeah, laugh, go ahead. And he's the one saying that these dull-hearted, closed-eared, stiff-necked people are always hearing but never understanding, always seeing but never perceiving, lest they should turn and repent and their sins be forgiven them. So Jesus here is quoting a very well-known passage from the prophet Isaiah, who was one of the most popular prophets in ancient Judaism. And by quoting this sarcastic prophet, he's saying, I wish they would come. It's like he's saying to his followers, almost as an aside, remember when Isaiah said that thing about how we're all, well, not him, but how all y'all people are stiff-necked and difficult? It's like, I wish you wouldn't be. I wish you would come. I wish you would awaken to new life. Jesus is saying here that he wishes that you would come. And I do have to say here, because I'm striving to be a faithful Bible preacher, I'm not trying to win a popularity contest, otherwise I wouldn't preach this, Um, but there is clearly an us and them mentality to some degree in God's kingdom. Right? Like the sheep and goats of Matthew 25 are a real thing. And if you don't know what that means, go home and read Matthew 25 today. It's a really interesting chapter. In it we see a picture of the final judgment where God separates the sheep from the goats. To the sheep, he says, come on home, I love you. And to the goats, he says, go ahead now. He sends them off to everlasting punishment. It's a horrifying, horrifying chapter. So, it's a real thing, the sheep and the goats thing. Here's how I've dealt with the sheep and the goats thing my whole life. I've always been like, well, I'm not God, so I don't know who's a sheep and who's a goat. Yes, I know the scriptures tell me that by your fruit shall you know them. So, like, I do spend a lot of time watching for fruitfulness in me, and then to some degree in those whom I'm tasked to lead. But even then, the human experience is complicated enough that 
I'm not about to sign on the dotted line based on your relative lack of fruitfulness. I hope you'd do the same for me. So I don't know who they are. And then here's the other way I deal with it. I figure there's no point arguing with goats about sheep things. You think about how many stupid Christians spend all their time arguing with goats about sheep things. Isn't that ridiculous? So like, ergo, we should probably never protest ever again. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. Not really. Because all the goats are going to think, what are these stupid sheep saying? I don't even understand their stupid sheep language. It's like, you may have family members who don't love Jesus. Stop arguing with them about Jesus. Also, very importantly, Anne-Marie, you liked this. I thought of you when I wrote it. If you're a sheep, stop asking goats to do sheep things. And, like, stop expecting that goats would do sheep things. This would help you have much better relationships with everybody. Because you're like, yep, probably not a sheep. So we're going to talk about goat things. How about them leaves? <laughs> like, there's a long way you can go with people. If you don't expect them to act like sheep. And, like, look, I know this is dangerous territory, but I preached it pretty nice. Didn't I say it pretty nice? I was pretty nice. So, like, if... A goat is super offended at this. You need So like if someone was here this morning and they're like, I'm not sure if I'm a sheep and I found that pretty offensive. Immediately invite them to become a sheep because they wouldn't be offended about not being a sheep unless the fingerprint of God had already been laid upon their soul, causing them to be very uneasy about their lack of sheepness. Because let me tell you, every goat I ever saw doesn't give a rat about not being a sheep. Preach, preacher. Y'all heard. <laughs> I was earning my money. We could quit. I'm almost done. Okay, it's only if the fingerprint of God is on your heart that you would react in any which way to feeling left out of the family of God. Right? If you weren't part of the family of God, you wouldn't be upset that Satan is the bird who stole the seed off the path. Unless you knew deep down that you were made for something more. If you knew deep down in your heart that you were made for something more, you'd be upset about the fact that the devil stole your seed. If you didn't belong to Jesus, you wouldn't be upset. And you uh, would realize the second it kind of came to your consciousness, I lack spiritual depth. The second you realize that you truly lack spiritual depth, and that's what's been making you so susceptible to losing your joy every time tribulation or persecution shows up? Well, you'd do something about it, wouldn't you? Those who don't do anything about it, I don't know. It's not very sheepish. You're like, wait a minute. I understand why I'm always so troubled by trouble. Because I lack depth. I guess I better do something about that. I mean, you'd know without me even telling you That the cares of this world and the deceitful seductiveness of riches and the unrelenting desire for things are truly choking the life out of you. So you would do anything you could to hear and accept the word so that you could start bearing fruit. If you were called to be a sheep. And in the right moment, the right time, you'd come to Jesus, wouldn't you? You'd hear the story about Jesus. You'd heard that God became a man. 
and went to a cross to suffer and die there in your place for your sins so that the wrath of God the Father might be poured out on him instead of on you. And that as Jesus died, his righteousness came to you and your badness went to him. You'd hear that and you'd be like, You'll remember it though. And in that moment, the good shepherd would become your shepherd. And somebody said. And having come to Jesus, worship team, I'm done, you can join me on stage. Having come to Jesus, you'd know that the truth will win, like in part 4, verses 21 through 23. So you'd put your money on God's victory and go all in, like in part 5, verses 24 through 25, because you'd know that it's not so much about how it happens, but it's the result that really matters because we are moving towards an end game here after all, like in part 6, verses 26 through 29, where these small beginnings are going to turn into a real lifesaver of a home, like in part 7 with the mustard seed and the mustard tree in verses 30 through 32. And knowing this, you'd share this secret with as many as you could, like Jesus in part 8 in verses 33 through 34, because like what happened in part 9 in verses 35 through 41, when the storm came and the boat is sinking and you feel like God has forgotten you, you're going to need to remember who it is you are dealing with here. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You need to remember, my friend, who you're dealing with here. The one who even the wind and seas obey. So, even though everything's always breaking and it's driving you crazy because you know that you were made for something more, don't let all the death in the world around you steal your joy because you know that there's a better way. So, don't waste your life. Be good seed. Follow the sower. And in the midst of a world that's dying, that's your recipe for life. 